Hello and welcome to Author in Your Classroom from Plazoon. My name is Helen Mully and the author joining us in your classroom or wherever you're listening for this episode has actually been a favourite of mine for quite a while now. He has this incredible knack for telling really quite tough and, and challenging stories in a way that keeps you as the reader completely gripped but also somehow strangely reassured about the world and the people who live in it. In the past, he's often written for young people who are a little bit older than our listeners tend to be, but his latest book, Now or Never, is definitely one that belongs in every Key Stage 2 library, and I am really looking forward to talking about it today. Welcome to the podcast, Bali Rai. Hi, nice to be here. (laughs) I'm very glad you're here. So, Bali... I said in my introduction that that you tell or often tell tough and challenging stories. Now, I know that's not the only kind of storytelling you do, but it is is kind of what I connect with you. So I suppose what I'm interested in finding out is how do you as a writer choose what kind of stories to tell? To begin with, it was always things that I wanted to, that I'd always wanted to write. So some of my earlier stuff, which was much more teenage, as you said, um, it was subject matter that I wanted to explore, but for things like now or never, right, it, there is a theme and the theme all the way through my career, no matter what I write, tends to be picking up unheard voices or unheard stories. Yeah. So when now or never appeared and it was this voices series that Tony Bradman and Scholastic were talking about, it, you know, the publisher, it worked for me immediately because it's what I've been doing my entire career. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. And you say your, your entire career, but I've been reading so, some other interviews with you and you started inventing stories when you were really quite young, didn't you? Yeah, I was um, probably seven. It's when I, I, I kind of fell in love with, I loved nonfiction as a reader to begin with and didn't really do fiction. And then I fell in love with James and the Giant Peach by Roald Dahl. Ah. Got read it, you know, a teacher read as story time every day and it was the first fiction book I really enjoyed. So after that, yeah, stories about zombie fish flying around the classroom eating the kids things like that so I can ask you what kind of stories yeah. you were writing when you were seven right and it was zombie fish yeah I, I I don't know why I just started putting my friends into the story and my teachers it was always it was it wasn't I, I didn't think at the age of seven obviously oh, I'm gonna write a story about real the real world I just use the people around me so it, and it's something I've always done it was a lot of fun as well it's a really natural thing for a writer isn't it I think to it, it goes back to that whole write what you know business that people are always saying to especially to to young writers and that does include grabbing characters who are who are in your real life and and putting them in these crazy fictional situations yeah it's really good practice as well I mean uh, I'm not I think you can also write about things you don't know. I think it really limits you to say, but if you're practicing as a writer, if you're a young writer, writing about the world, you know, or using your friends as characters, your family is actually a really good way to practice. It was a tip that a fellow writer, Robert Swindles, gave me many, many years ago when I first started about the idea that if you wanted to write about a chair, you wouldn't have to invent a chair. You know what a chair looks like, so just use a chair, you know, and stick to you know, your imaginative, your creative stuff is the stuff that really kind of holds the story together, the emotional arcs and the journey and the magic and all the rest of it. But if you need a tree, why invent a tree? Just use a tree that, you know, you know, look out the window. That makes such a lot of sense. 
But the the seven or eight year old Bali didn't think to himself, well, when I grow up, I'm going to write books and be published and, and visit schools and talk about my books. So what happened to your path in between now and then? How, how did you end up where you are now? I, 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 it was something that I think the the first time I really thought about it as a career was when Sue Townsend's Adrian Mole book came out, the first one, because Sue <laughs> was from Leicester, um, sadly is no longer with us, and she was my idol. She was like my true role model. Uh, you know, I loved Dahl and C.S. Lewis and all kinds of people, Douglas Adams, loved reading, but she was writing about Leicester and about the people of Leicester, and it was something that, and she was just, you know, it's a regular woman from a regular sort of background, and I just thought, well, if she can do it, I can. So I had that dream, but I didn't really do anything with it. I was just, you know, the usual sort of route through school, college, university. I've got a degree in politics. You sort of, I started writing and started thinking about it, and it was eventually my first novel, An Arranged Marriage for Teenagers, that I showed to a lady I know whose mum is a literary agent. And she just sort of looked at it and went, yeah, it's quite good, but it needs a lot of work, which was very true. Seven edits. <laughs> and you were prepared to go and put that work in? Yeah, I think um, all, all the authors you speak to, it doesn't matter how successful they are. I mean, I'm talking about actual authors that write their books here. Um, you have to yeah, the hard work has to be there. If you, it doesn't matter what you do. If you're young and you're thinking about a career as a doctor and nurse, my eldest is a um, nearly co- completed mm-hmm. training as a nurse. It's hard work. You've got to be willing to put that hard work in. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been reading your latest book, Now or Never, mm-hmm. which, as you say, is part of the the Voices series, in which authors are telling real stories from history, but seen from the viewpoint of people's whose voices aren't usually heard so could you tell us a little bit about whose voice we're hearing in now or never and and why that's the story you wanted to tell yeah the 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 central character is called Fazal Khan um and I sort of reworked the story so that he'd be younger to fit the narrative um so he's he leaves home to follow in the footsteps of his grandfather who fought as a Commonwealth soldier in World War One, and he's doing the same in World War Two. So he ends up um, with the Royal Indian Army Service Corps who were, in this case, Company 32, were leading mules and horses. And he ends up in um, Marseille um, and then in uh, France in the run-up to Operation Dynamo, what, you know, popularly known as Dunkirk. And he is a basically a young Indian uh, man who is caught up in this war and caught up in the sort of whole sort of um, when he starts, he's very naive. He thinks about war as something that's about bravery and camaraderie and all the rest of those things. And it's as he ends up in France, it's about how his experiences change the way he feels. But it's essentially, it sounds weird, but he's following his dream at the start. And these were real characters. Company 32 really existed. Um, Captain Ashdown the um the guy leading company 32 was a real character he had a famous politician for a son paddy ashdown so you know it's uh it, it was about following the characters that existed and telling a story that hadn't been told because the story is there you just have to search really really hard for it which is what i had to do yes and, and that was amazing to me because this this was this was an aspect of of dunkirk even even of the war itself that i didn't know much about and and you know I consider myself a reasonably well-read well-taught person and I certainly didn't know about Paddy Ashdown's father yeah I'm not going to spoil the story but he's an incredible character it's it's just extraordinary 
and and so reading this for me knowing that that it was something true that happened but had been sort of factored out of the way that I saw that scene happening including you know on the big screen and we might talk about that a bit more later as well mm-hmm. it was it was really moving and and it was really powerful and what I would really, really like, Bali, if that's okay, is if you could share an extract from the book with our listeners so, so they can get a feel for the writing and a snapshot of the story. So I'm just going to pause for a moment while you get your book and turn to the right page. And then if it's okay, I'll ask you to read for us from Now or Never, A Dunkirk Story. Welcome back to Author in Your Classroom with our guest today, Bali Rai. Bali, you're going to read to us now from your book, Now or Never. Before you start, would you mind just explaining a little bit about what's been happening in the story so far so that our listeners can properly picture the scene? Yeah, um, uh, Company 32, along with Fazal Khan, his friends, Captain John Ashdown, they've made their way from India to Marseille on a boat, the mules um, and the the men have uh, disembarked and they begin their journey in France, obviously in the south, and then work their way north to try and repel the the, the, the Nazi invasion of France. The, you know, the, 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 the Nazis famously broke through the, the impenetrable Maginot line. Um, so they're, they're heading north and at the point at which the story where I'm going to read that they've reached Dunkirk and they are sort of along the coastal path and they're heading into Dunkirk um, and they're really unsure of their future. They're really unsure of what's going to happen with the mules. And Fazal has had his 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 dreams, his kind of his idea of what it would be like. Have been you know they've been dashed. He's uh, beginning to question everything that he sees around him and his role, um, which is a very difficult thing for him to do because he's he's driven by a sense of integrity and honour that you always do the right thing. In fact, the entire company are they have a duty to fulfil and they're beginning to question that duty and whether it's the right thing. With nothing else to do, we sat on the road and waited. Sergeant Buckingham walked up and down the lines, checking on us and issuing nonsensical orders about staying put and not causing a fuss. None of the men were complaining, even though we had every right to. And with nowhere to go, what else could we do but sit and wait? Buckingham seemed drunk again and took several swigs from a hip flask until it ran dry. He cursed and flung it aside before muttering to himself. Part of me had grown to hate the sergeant, but I couldn't help remembering that his father had died at the Somme. Perhaps this explained his hatred and anger, and perhaps that gave him some semblance of an excuse for his behaviour. Each of us was frightened and weary, and each of us coped with our stresses in particular ways. It was not for me to judge my sergeant, but I could not help disliking him nonetheless. He had insulted my country, my culture, and my honour one too many times. Before us lay the open sea, grey and choppy and filling the air with saltiness. From the road, a wide bank led steeply down onto the narrow beach, also crammed with troops. I nudged Mush, who was sitting with his eyes closed, deep in thought. The beach is not very wide, I told him. He opened his eyes and took in the scene. It's high tide, he told me. The sea will retreat this evening and the beach will widen then. Tides? 
Mush shook his head like a slightly disappointed teacher. The sea moves in and out with the tides, he explained. You must remember that from our journey to Marseille. No, I admitted. I was too busy dreaming about what we might see in France, or tending to the mules. You mean they didn't teach you about tides at your fancy school, said Mush. No, they didn't, I replied. Hmm, he said. You're very stupid for somebody so clever. And you're very ugly, I joked. We make a good team, brother. He punched my shoulder playfully, closed his eyes and went back to daydreaming. But not for very long. A shout went up and then dive bombers appeared to the east. They sped along the coastline, homing in on our position like angry hornets in late summer. Sergeant Buckingham blew his whistle and we ran towards the town itself, desperate to avoid the attack. The sands erupted with bombs and gunfire as our troops tried to escape. Many were cut down where they sat, and others as they ran. Some charged into the sea, eager to escape death, but it did no good. The water did not prevent the bullets from hitting their mark. The Stuckers made three passes, and each time they took more lives, and then they were gone as quickly as they'd arrived. Clouds of smoke and dust polluted the air, and the sand turned red where the casualties were greatest. Screaming and groaning filled my ears, then shouting and calling for medics. Two ambulances made their way towards us, but their progress was slow because the area around the road was jam-packed with angry and panicked men. A few of my comrades began to clear a path, but a gang of white soldiers grew angry and a fight broke out. Captain Morrow and two other officers rushed to calm things down, and in all of the madness, the wounded continued to suffer. It's every man for himself and no mistake, said a British private close by. I bet those officers were enjoying a nice cuppa while we sat in the open. Stands to reason, don't it, said another. One rule for them, another rule for us, blinking toffs. A few murmurs became shouts, and I thought the private and his friends might start a riot. But then Sergeant Buckingham fired his pistol into the air. Calm down, he screamed. That is an order. Wow. I, I, honestly, I think in that short extract, you've got pretty much everything that a piece of really dramatic writing should have and by that I don't mean a piece of melodramatic writing I mean a piece of writing that puts you right in the middle of the action so you see it you hear it you smell it and 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 you feel it honestly you feel like you're right in the middle of what's going on as as a reader or a listener at the same time you're really connected to what the narrator is feeling as well. The the way that Fazal is is experiencing this. How do yeah. you get that balance as a writer? How do you keep it so vivid and dramatic, but also have this internal narrative going on? I, I tend to start, and it's kind of another bit of advice I give to all writers, but particularly young ones. I I start with an emotional arc. So when I began this story, obviously the the history and the facts are really important. But the starting point for me was Fazal's emotional state when he begins the story and the journey he goes on. So as I write and I'm taking in the facts and I'm kind of developing this, the plot line in a physical sense, where are they going? What's going on? What actually happened on that day? What did the town look like? It becomes less important to me than how he feels about it because stories are driven by emotion you know we they're driven by drama and drama comes from emotion and without that you just have a series of incidents that really don't connect in any sort of empathic way with readers so for i always say to young people pick an emotion 
sadness, anger, happiness, whatever, and then explore that, have your character explore that and talk about that. And then the story will come because that's where the story comes from. And it was kind of easy to do in a way because I had such a connection with Fazal um, and with the rest of the men the minute I started learning about them because I was so sad that this story hadn't been told. And also, if I'm honest, I was quite angry that this story wasn't as widely known as it should have been. So, you know, those two things drove it. And then it's about getting the balance right. And if you follow the emotions, you get the balance right. Yeah. And it's interesting that you mention empathy because one moment in that scene stands out particularly for me in, in an emotional sense, which is when Fazal is thinking about Sergeant Buckingham, who's who's a horrible character. He's almost a, a caricature, isn't isn't he? With his yeah. coldness and and his meanness and and his spite, and Fazal has every reason to loathe him. And then you have him pause and think, oh, hang on a minute, this is a man who's whose father died the last time we all went to war and perhaps that's influenced his behaviour. And he doesn't let him off the hook. He doesn't say, well, that means he's allowed to be a horrible person. But it takes him closer to understanding him. And I just wonder how important it was for you to have that empathy going in that direction as well as you wrote the story. It became really important because I didn't want... Buckingham is a horrible character, but I've always said this, my experience growing up in the UK, um, you know, I'm nearly 50, and experiencing racial prejudice, the people who have any kind of prejudice, they learn that prejudice, so uh, or they develop it for a reason, and it's all very well shouting at people who are prejudiced, racist, whatever, but you're not going to change their minds by shouting at them. So I, for me, the starting point is always trying to understand the character and why they do what they do, and then fairness. So, you know, you don't have to like Buckingham as a character, but it's unfair if you don't understand why he's so angry, why he's constantly drunk, all the rest of it. I, I really worried about putting that in because of the age um, range of the readership, but I wanted it to be really honest. And I often think we shy away from talking to our younger readers about stuff like this when they're actually perfectly capable of taking that in and understanding it. And I, I, I don't want the book to be... a an exercise in young people going, oh, you know, we hate Buckingham and the other officers and we love like Fazal and his. It's about them thinking for themselves and working out for themselves why people do what they do and what where that comes from. And it was really important. Buckingham, uh, Morrow up to a point, but um, obviously Ashdown, John Ashdown in a, in a huge way because he's such an amazing character. But I wanted to have that balance. I think writing with that balance for me, I can't do it. It doesn't work. You know, I did it a lot when I was younger uh, with my earlier stuff. And then I re- I'd read it back and go, I haven't been particularly fair on that character. So I think stories are better when you understand people's motives and why they do what they do. Yes, absolutely. When you can't start at the beginning and have your character list and say, these are the mm. baddies and these are the goodies. I think a sign of a really well-told story is that the there's baddies and the goodies get just a little bit smushed up. You may like yeah. some of them more than others, but it's never as simple as, as baddies and, and goodies. Always depends on the genre. You know, if you're doing it good versus evil, then fair enough if it's like a funny spy type thing. But for something like war, those, they have to be there. Those layers have to be there. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I'm interested in this idea about telling unheard stories from history. And I'm I'm particularly interested in this idea of how we choose which voices 
we share and on top of that how we can be sure that we're sharing them as as authentically as possible so i'm just mindful we spoke to benjamin zephaniah in a previous episode of author in your classroom one thing that he said to all the listeners was look if if we don't tell our own stories then someone else is likely to tell them for us that that's kind of what you're doing with now or never that that's quite a responsibility isn't it yeah it um it feels like it i mean i know exactly where benjamin's coming from with that there is for a long time and i've been doing this 20 years he's been doing it a little bit longer mallory blackman for way longer um <laughs> but we've spoken about this the three of us in in you know person before i know both of those writers and you 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 start doing it because the stories aren't there and then there, you feel a sense of responsibility but at the same time people will then turn around to you and go oh do you you know do you feel that you have the responsibility to do it i don't have to do it it's same with benjamin same with mallory whoever we choose as writers to tell the stories we tell and for me it was more about the the fact that there are young people who are going to be listening who learn history my little girl is seven you know they learn history but we're only telling them certain parts of it and with dunkirk particularly the idea that it was just a whole load of white soldiers on a beach and you know there were hardly any women and there were hardly there were no indian troops there were no senegalese west african french troops defending the town all of these things happened but they're all missing from things like the 2017 film you know, there were hardly any women in that story, yet all the nurses would have been female because back then there were no male nurses. Yeah. So it's about telling the story as a more rounded, telling the history as a more rounded thing and being a lot more honest about it. And that feels like a responsibility because people, are, based on my social media when this came out, some people don't like that and they like to shout at you about it. But there you go. Well, then the rest of us just love the idea that we can read a really brilliant, entertaining book, but also learn something really important you know and I'm you and I are pretty much of an age and I certainly learned something by the time I've, I finished it and I also you know it made me want to go out and, and tell other people did you know this thing and I, I think that's a really profoundly important thing so thank you for that you're very welcome like I said I did exactly the same thing as you with the history when I was learning it I was really annoyed with myself for not knowing it already because I think I'm well read and I think I'm a history buff I love history always have done um <laughs> But it's yeah, I find myself doing the same. I was messaging friends, going, "You, you know, you're not going to believe this. Look what I've just learned." You know, it's yeah. you know, but it's there. This stuff is there. It's just sad that we have to we have to search for it. You know, it should be there for us to access. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it should. And 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 it's books like this that help us step in that direction. I think, which is great. I can't believe it, but we we're, we're running out of time, and I have another chunk of questions to ask you in fact I've got a bit of a of a surprise for you I think because some of our listeners um, from Bolton School Junior Boys have been reading Now or Never as part of their Remembrance Book Club using resources developed by the National Literacy Trust working with the Royal British Legion and they've sent in some questions oh wow awesome that they would love you to answer live if that's okay I'd love to. I was supposed to go and visit them, I think, and it had to be cancelled. So, yeah, or certainly do a virtual thing or something. There was something that was going to happen that didn't happen. So, yeah, that'd be great. Oh, fantastic. Well, in which case, I'm just going to pause for a little bit while I get that organised. Before I do, though, um, can I just remind parents and teachers listening that we do produce a free resources pack to go with every episode of Author in Your Classroom so that children can take what they're listening and feed it into their own writing? 
You can download it from plazoom.com and details are in the episode notes, as are details of the National Literacy Trust's Remembrance Book Club resources. So, as I say, I will pause the recording for a moment while everyone takes that in and then we'll be back for the real interrogation. Welcome back to Author in Your Classroom with today's guest, Bali Rai. Okay, Bali, so as I explained, these next few questions have been sent in to us from pupils at Bolton School Junior Boys who have been reading Now or Never as part of their Remembrance Book Club. And the first question is from Saif, who asks, is there a character you feel you relate to yourself? Not so much myself. There is, I mean, there are elements of my sort of way of thinking about the world in Fazal. Fazal is um, obviously from an Islamic background. My family is Sikh, but the Punjabi culture, heritage, that Northern Indian, uh, India as it was then, it's obviously modern day Pakistan now, Rawalpindi. There is that connection about the concepts of having a, a hukam hair, they call it, having a duty. So you, you're given a duty and you're on a bound to fulfill that. That's something that Punjabi people and Punjabi descended people have within their kind of psyche. It's a kind of, it's a real sort of trait. Um, so there are elements of that, but it was probably the first story um, in a long time with a male protagonist where I, it, it wasn't really me. It was, I was really very much concentrating on the character themselves. I often tend to leave bits of myself in lots of my male protagonists and some of my female ones in terms of worldview. But no, it, I wanted it to be about Fazal and half Fazal. Um, and Fazal's journey and obviously there was plenty for me to go on yeah it's a really good question that because I tend to do that quite a lot (laughs) well Adar has a great question as well I I, I love this one which is how did you know when your story was finished oh I I wonder how writers ever know when their story is finished yeah that's a brilliant question um i didn't to be honest you know i I sort of knew where i knew what was going to happen because i know that he has to leave and get to marseille i know they have to end up on the beaches at dunkirk i know they knew the history and what happened after that and i don't want to ruin it for anybody so but we know they're going to end up at dunkirk it's a dunkirk story and I kind of tried to find a place where the I could tie it up for this because it's historically so that it's based on historical facts. I didn't want to have some kind of open-ended story. I wanted the readers to know sort of where they ended up, but also leave it a little bit open. So there is a, again, I won't ruin it for anybody, but there is a natural or there was a natural point at which the story ends. And I, I decided to go with that, which is a timeline thing, you know, historical timeline. So one of the few points at which I actually stuck to the history, <laughs> you know, I stuck to the facts, but I let a lot of the the detail disappear so I could tell a better story. Good question, though. I suppose kind of tying into that, Tejas wonders, um, how long did it take you to write? Oh, I don't know if he's including research in that, but I think you probably have to, don't you? Yeah, I, I always separate the two. So research-wise, probably six months um, on and off from the initial conversation with the series editor to getting the first draft in and editing it. Mm-hmm. And within those six months, the writing of the first draft didn't take very long at all. It took me about a week. But I, I was, I, I, you know, I just worked on it every day because I got into the story 
from the moment it was mentioned and I started researching it. So sitting down to write it when I found the time, I just sat down and I started writing it. So just over a week, probably seven, eight days in total for wow. the first draft. I mean, that's, you know, obviously for the for the listeners, um, the teachers will know this, that the first draft doesn't get published. It's just, you know, this is get the story down and then work on it. Uh, but yeah, about <laughs> seven, eight days for the writing. <laughs> okay. Well, I think we've got time for just one more question and this one comes from will and he wants to know whether you had any family members in the war or did any family members inspire you with characters in the book um my family history is very sketchy so i know up to a point that on my father's side there were very few people who were involved they were farming they were involved um with the farming my farm my father's village produced two indian revolutionaries who were fighting against british rule on my mum's side my mum's my mum's uncle sorry ended up in the merchant navy and he was definitely involved but there's no real history of that and he ended up after the war living in fiji um so there's a fijian side potentially to our kind of wider family that we know nothing about um so yeah it's all a bit sketchy on my mum's side on my father's side no they were all farmers and some of the, the village Moranwali it's called um was quite a rebellious village i don't think anyone would have gone to fight for king and country i think they were more likely to fight against king and country and this is again these are stories that are there that need to be told that are part of our history it's something i need to look into i was just about to say that there's there's an, there's another story there for sure Oh, there's a few. There are, there are always <laughs> stories to be told. There are always untold voices, which is why it's such a privilege to be allowed the space and the platform in order to to explore those. Absolutely. So there you go, boys and, and all our listeners. I hope you found those answers interesting. I know I did. And they were really great questions too. Fantastic. I am slightly worried that those boys are after my job. So I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking, you know, this, this, is, this is not something that I'm going to make a regular feature on the podcast. But that does really bring us to the end of our time together, Bali. It's been a joy and an education speaking with you. So thank you very, very much for being here. Thank you very much. It's been a real privilege and great questions. And thank you also to all our listeners, wherever you are. We'll be back soon with another inspirational author and I cannot wait. Bye. Author in Your Classroom is brought to you by Plazoom, where we are passionate about making great literacy lessons easy with inspiring, ready-to-go resources created by teachers to cover the whole of the primary curriculum. So, whether you're a teacher desperate for SATS revision that pupils will actually enjoy, a parent just as baffled by fronted adverbials as your child, or anyone looking for fun ways to keep children reading and writing during the summer holidays, we've got hundreds of brilliant ideas to explore. Take a look for yourself at plazoom.com, where you can sign up to our newsletter and be the first to find out about our special offers and the new resources that are added to the site every single week. Every episode of Author in Your Classroom is packed with writing advice and inspiration from some of the world's best-loved children's writers. Plus, there are free activities and worksheets based on each author's work to spark children's imagination on plazoom.com. Just check the episode notes for links and more. You can subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. We want to reach as many pupils in as many classrooms as possible, so please do give us a rating or a review, but above all, tell your colleagues about us and help spread the word. 
We know that a love of reading opens doors, not just to success at school and beyond, but to a lifetime of excitement, adventure and discovery. Let us help you make it happen with author in your classroom and Plazoom.